Good morning, everyone. What an awesome day. What an awesome God we serve. All right. Well, there, there is a meeting today for those who will be helping with the biblical dinner directly following the service, so that'll just be in the tables in the back. There's also a sign-up sheet out front to look at if you have not yet signed up. That's in two weeks' time, so Saturday, so Saturday week is the big night. So looking forward to that, and it uh, should be a real blessing to experience. And uh, yes, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today. And let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that you will always be holy, that you are glorious and good. You are faithful and compassionate. You are almighty and all-knowing. And the God who created us, the God who knows us intimately, the one who has given all so we could be born again and redeemed and call you Father. And I pray we would experience your presence today, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would speak through your word, that we would receive it as like just hungry birds opening their mouths wide. Lord, please fill us. Please help us to humble ourselves before you and to trust that you are God. You know what you're doing and you will help us. You are our hope and our portion in the land of the living now and forever. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We make decisions all the time, and a lot of times we factor in, well, what am I going to get out of the deal? How does this benefit me? Uh, we go to the shops. We weigh the value for money, like how many kilos uh, or how many dollars per kilo or uh, featuring one brand or feature against another. And we think about the manufacturer warranty, and we think, well, is it worth getting the extended warranty? And was it really, is it really worth value for money? And And... We, we learn from mistakes. We're like, well, I'm not buying that brand again, or I won't be going to that shop again. Or uh, we, we, We're always thinking and, and filing away these decisions so that we can better make in the future to benefit us, right? That's the primary reason why you, you go to a shop or you buy something, so you benefit from it. And from a young age, even kids, you notice the grave injustice if your brother or sister has one more hot chip on their plate than yours. Like, this is wrong. How come it's not even? And in our household, when our sons were young, our solution to keep things fair was, well, one does the cutting of the cake or the pouring of the soft drink, and the other one gets to choose. So that means the person who's pouring it or cutting it is trying to be as precise as possible because they want to make sure that they get an equal amount. So everything's fair. Uh, and as we grow in love and grace, we think of others instead of self. And we say, you know, I will take the one that's obviously smaller or it could be just vanity. You know, you're going to wear it. And so you figure I, I'll just forego. I will abstain for, for the benefit of my figure because that, that doesn't benefit me. Right? So we're, we're thinking about what benefits us. And uh, Solomon, he's, he's considering life under the sun. He's saying, how can we get the best out of life in the here and the now? Here's a man who had power, wealth, wives. Uh, he took every activity to the extreme because he could. And he's importing things and he's experiencing everything. And these massive building projects that take over 10 years, um, just raking in billions of dollars a year annually and, and spending it. 
but he found himself empty and dissatisfied. He sought, he sought wealth. He sought laughter. And he's like, it's all meaningless. It's all, it, it leaves me empty because everything I'm gaining, I'm going to leave to somebody else who won't appreciate it. Hasn't worked for it. And in this chapter, he turns his attention to God because remember, this is a perspective of a world, a worldly outlook of like, well, what is life about? And what does, what does it matter? And now he brings God into the picture and says, well, this is how fearing God can benefit us now. He's writing to people under the covenant of law, but this wisdom is relevant for us all. Um, and, and we have Jesus who is our portion, our inheritance. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1. It says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Solomon urged people going up to the temple to worship God to uh, go carefully to think before they spoke. And they went up to the presence of God, God, the almighty God, the creator of all things. He revealed himself to Israel. He gave the Jews his laws and the temple was the only place where you could go to the presence of God. Of course, God, the earth, the earth is his footstool. The heaven is his throne. You can't contain him in a building, but that was a special place where it was the only acceptable place on the planet to offer God sacrifices and to fulfill the law. So when you went up to his presence in the temple of Jerusalem, you should do it carefully. You should do it thoughtfully during trips to Cambodia. Uh, I noticed there were a lot of temples. I think uh, there's over 4,000 temples and spirit shrines everywhere. And it's not uncommon in a hotel or in a shop to see plastic food or these fake bundles of money to be placed before these idols because the idol doesn't know the difference. It sees just millions laying in front of it. And I mean, it, it can't do anything. So it's like, well, let's just, it doesn't really matter. We'll just give it this gift. Um, though we don't see God and his temple was unique in that there was no image. There was no image to represent God. You could not see him, but he sees everything. He knows everything. And sometimes I've heard people say like, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to take up a, I have a, I have a question or I have a complaint. Just like you would go to like a, a, a store manager to talk to them. And I'm like, you know, it's, Solomon says, it is better to go up with the intention to listen than to go up with words to say. Go up to the house of God, listening, heeding what God says. It'd be better to be silent before God than to give the sacrifice of fools, to be a hypocrite and say you're going to do something and not do it. To slay an animal without faith in God, just an empty act. When you don't fear God, because God knows that it's fake. He knows that you're a phony. So don't do that. Don't draw near to him with your mouth when your heart is far from him. And we know that God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus. And so he says, when you go up to the temple, listen. And the words that you speak, select them carefully. Don't be rash. That means to be hasty or to speak without caution or thinking things through. We do well. Um, I, I, it's like 
He says, be, be listening. And for me, I can't listen when I'm talking. So that means I have to be quiet. I have to silence my lips before the Lord. And I need to then listen to what he will say. It's ironic. Have you guys ever teased out the idea of, you know, you get your three wishes to, talk, to ask a genie the three things? Like people actually prepare. This is never going to happen. But they actually prepare for this. They're like, if I had three wishes of anything, what would I ask for? And they put together this scenario of the things that they value and how they're going to actually get more than three wishes. Um, so it's, it's ironic that you would actually prepare an answer to this question. What would you ask a genie? Yet we can make all requests at all time before the almighty God. And we may give that little thought or seldom actually do it. Isn't that ironic? We ought to humbly approach God, not with suggestions or demands, but to hear his wisdom, to learn how to pray, to learn what to pray. Solomon said, God's in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. See, our perspective, it's so small. It's short-sighted. We're down here among the activities. We can't see like he has that, that overhead view of everything. And he has that view of time as well. He knows what's happened in the past. He knows what will happen in the future. He is eternal. It would be kind of like, and you know how silly this would be, your first day on the job, you're a part-time employee, to pull the CEO and owner of the company aside and to put your arm around him and tell him all the things he could do to improve this company. You know, if you really want a real company, you should, you know, increase production here and, and be better about, um, you know, sell yourself better on online presence. And you're like, dude, you have no idea. You have no idea what goes into running a business. You've never run a business. You've never started one. And yet you have all this advice for me. How about you put your money where your mouth is, put some effort into your activities and, and then come talk to me once you've achieved what I have. And it's like, that's just a small case compared to pulling God aside and telling him how he ought to do things or what would really be in his benefit. Like this is God we're talking to. So Solomon says, be careful, be thoughtful of the things you say, but be quick to listen. Then he says, a dream comes through much activity. A fool's note, voice is known by his many words. There's things that occupy us, occupy our minds during the day, and it can come into our dreams at night. Have you guys ever had those working dreams where you're doing in your dream what you do all day, and you're like, oh, ugh. It's not very restful. And you wouldn't be thinking that thing unless you were involved mentally with that activity. And Solomon says, you can always know a fool's voice because he's the one always talking. He's not listening, just talking. And none of us want to be that guy before God, right? And so I'm like, Lord, help my words to be few. You're in heaven. You know everything. You know everything about me. And his motives are perfect. And his purposes are awesome. And to trust him in listening to him. So he's emphasizing silence, listening to God and Jesus. So we, we get from Solomon to be silent, to listen. And then Jesus tells us how we should pray. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Matthew six, verse five. He's telling them their motivation to pray that it's not to be seen by men, but before God who sees in secret. 
Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. Jesus said, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard by their many, for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Jesus is the authority of knowing the hearts and motives and thoughts of men. He is God. And he speaks with authority concerning the hypocrisy of those who made a public show of their prayer. They wrapped their tefillin. They went up to the wall. They went wherever in their synagogues, on the corners of their streets, not to have an audience with God, but to be seen by men. He says, well, that's their reward. But you don't be like them. Don't be in it to just make a show to others. Pray in secret. I like that he says, when you pray, not if you pray. When, when you pray. This is something we ought to be doing. This is not a prohibition of public or corporate prayer. It's not saying that, you know, oh, if you're really spiritual, you don't pray publicly. You don't pray around people. No, it's about the motive of the heart. Is it to be seen by men or is it to have an audience with the almighty? That's what we're supposed to be seeking. God. Better to listen and pray than to talk about praying because we can talk about praying, but how about praying? Like God hears our prayers. He will answer. And he warns here against vain repetitions as if God did not hear or understand the first time. Like prayer is not a punishment. It is not a chore. It's not more effective if we repeat the same words over and over. It's not like, well, that 30th time finally swung God in my direction. It's like, well, no, God knows what you need even before you ask. So ask, believe him, trust in him. Think about the prophets of Baal, right? They're having this showdown with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And it says they are shouting and dancing and they are cutting themselves to try to get their God's attention who nothing happens because the whole thing was whichever God answers with fire from heaven and consumes a sacrifice. That's the real God we should worship. So they do this all day for hours. Nothing happens. Elijah, he has the people draw near to him, but really he draws near to the Lord in prayer. He utters two sentences and fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And the people bow before the Lord, just saying, the Lord, he is God. Four days, people mourned the death of Lazarus. They wept many tears and they lamented over him. It was one single sentence of Jesus in prayer that prompted him saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he was raised from the dead. Like prayer is powerful. God is powerful. He knows what we need even before we say a word. And he's able to meet those needs. It's a, it's a different thing, right? You can know what the need is, but you can't meet the need. Well, God, he knows the need. He can meet the need. Nothing is hard for him. His arm is not shortened that it should not, he should not save. He gives forgiveness of sin. He gives eternal life. Back to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. 
pay what you have vowed better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. The law gives an outline of vows that were given. These are promises made to God, positive or negative. The positive was something that you were going to do or to give to God. And the negative was to abstain from necessities or comforts. And here he's talking about positive vows that you've said you're going to do something uh, before the Lord. And we read in Deuteronomy 27 that there are voluntary offerings you could do, free will offerings of a person, an animal, house, or land. Think about Samuel, right? Hannah, she didn't have a child. And she said, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. I will dedicate him to you. And so from the time he was weaned, he actually physically served the Lord in the tabernacle. Now there was a provision in the law where you could say, I will give my son to you, but there was a price that you could pay to redeem them. So you could pay silver based upon their age or sex that would, um, make good on your vow to give that person to the Lord. And he said, if you've made a vow to God, don't procrastinate. Don't put off doing it. It's better not to promise to God and wait and procrastinate than just to, you should do it or just don't say it at all. If you don't plan to do it. I mean, we count on God hearing us and answering our prayers quickly, right? We, we count on him keeping his word to us. So we ought to keep our word to him. This was commanded in Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Pharaoh, he's probably the poster child of someone who said they would do something, but didn't follow through, right? The the plagues were coming. He called Moses in a rush. Uh, Moses you know, pray to God. I'll let the people go. Just take these frogs away, you know, help this, this terrible uh, locust invasion to stop. Then I'll let your people go. And as soon as God did relieve him of the plague, what happened? He hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So he promised, but then he didn't follow through. And what happened in the end after those 10 plagues were completed, it led to widespread destruction of the nation the death of the firstborn and the ruin of Egypt. The the leader said, don't you see that Egypt is ruined because you haven't followed through because these people are still here with us. So let your yes be yes. And your no be no, no psych or kidding, just kidding. When it comes to God, it's not an acceptable excuse. Oh, I was just joking. God, does God joke? That's not how he jokes. He has a sense of humor, but he is, um, he never uses empty words. He doesn't just say something and then not do it. He follows through. Solomon says in a multitude of dreams and words, there is also vanity. There were people who would make a vow and then have a dream and the dream would release them. They're like, oh, this must be from the Lord to release me from the vow that I made. And so they would go back on their word because of this dream or this conversation or this thing they read, these supposed revelations from God. So they talked themselves out of keeping their word. Like they had made a voluntary free will offering or an oath, but then talked themselves out of it when the emotion was low or they're like, you know, maybe that wasn't a great idea. 
Those who make vows before the Lord, you're obligated to keep them. You should keep your word. Don't make the dream you've had, the book you've read, the conversation you had deter you from you keeping your word that you have given before the Lord. Turn to uh, Jeremiah 23, 25. And I think that dreams are still something people look to today to receive guidance from God when we have his word already. And we just have to be mindful that in a multitude of dreams, there also is a lot of vanity there. There's a lot of things like, like for every dream that probably the Lord was speaking through or actually made sense, there were probably a hundred that didn't. <laughs> so we must sort out the chaff from the wheat. Jeremiah 23, 25, the prophet writes, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord. I did a Google search of a Christian bookstore. It netted 76,000 hits on books on Bible interpretation. It had 48,000 hits on interpreting dreams. I was like, wow, that's like more than half. But which is more important? Interpreting the Bible, interpreting God's word. That's the primary thing, right? He has spoken. He has made, it's not like he's a far off God who hasn't revealed himself. No, he's given us his word. We hold it in our hands. We don't have to like, well, I hope, I hope the Lord speaks to me. So I'm going to pray that I dream something that will give me guidance in what to do. Pray, seek the Lord, trust him more than your dream. He can speak through a dream, but then what is the chaff to the wheat? You could plant chaff, a hundred tons of chaff you could plant. That's just the, the husk. It's good fiber, but it's not good for planting. It's not good for growing, but the seed that the husk covers, that's what's going to grow. And God's word, when it's planted in a heart, it's going to be fruitful. It's going to produce. It's going to do exactly what he has designed it to do. So let's not blame him or a dream for us refusing to keep our word. Let's feed on God's word and let's keep ours. Back to Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter for high, high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Solomon now switches from switches gears from dreams to the real world where oppression and perversion of justice is a grim reality. And he's shifting to that. Just like there's a, there's a, there's vanity in a multitude of dreams. There's going to be corruption in a large bureaucracy. It says, don't be surprised when you see people with hearts that are corrupted by sin because that's our natural condition apart from Christ, that there will be oppression. There will be self-seeking. It will lead to injustice when power and authority is used to oppress. And then you have these, these layers of bureaucracy where um, people are distanced from and isolated from the struggles of the common person. They're not actually able to help you. There's a lot of different 
There's a lot of red tape to get to, to maybe have an answer for your problem. I think of Haman as a perfect example of someone who oppressed using his power. He had influence with the king. He hated the Jews just because Mordecai would not bow before him in the street. And so under the guise of benefiting the king's treasury, he's like, oh, there's these problematic people. We just got to get rid of them. They're causing trouble in your kingdom. And I'll add this much to your treasury. It'll increase your revenue by this much. The king's like, well, that sounds pretty good. That's going to help my bottom line. Go for it. And he, he signed an edict that would exterminate the Jews. Rather than putting our trust in government or rulers, we're to pray for them, to submit to them in the fear of the Lord. And God, what did he do? He provided salvation and deliverance despite the power that Haman had. And it ended up Haman hanging on the gallows rather than Mordecai. So God will protect and provide for his people. And he rules in righteousness to this day. So we have taxes rising, the cost of living rising. We have riches in heaven that cannot be lost. And there's no red tape or bureaucrat preventing us from having an audience with the Almighty who hears our prayers, who answers, who provides every day for our needs. And should the Lord put you in a position where you have people working under you that report to you or those that you report to um, higher ups, may your relationship with Jesus flavor your words and your deeds that you would walk in humility before them. You would not be one who oppresses others using your position for self-serving gain. Think about Peter and the apostles. They were brought before the Sanhedrin and Acts 4.13, it talks about the impression they made. Now these were fishermen from Galilee. So they didn't have an accent that was like you know how you hear an accent where it just sounds intelligent because they're speaking in an accent to you, but there to their speakers, the Galilean accent was not, it didn't it sounded more like, I guess, yeah, it was not refined and they were illiterate. These men had not gone to school like the Sanhedrin had. They were not lawyers or doctors. All these guys, they were highly educated. And this is what it says in four, Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. So there's these unschooled, illiterate men. They spoke courageously and openly of their relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is God in human flesh. He's the only way of salvation. And the doctors and law, lawyers of the law, they were silenced by them. And they go, you know what? It's because they were with Jesus. They didn't realize that Jesus was with them. The Holy Spirit was in them. Jesus was with them. And they were speaking forth boldly the truth of the gospel that these men who condemned, were condemning them were guilty and needed to repent, needed salvation that was found in Christ alone. Now, I don't know if, if you can really put this along um, lines to say that whether you're poor or rich, it impacts your, your, uh, the way you speak, but it may be that the well-educated and professional may be less apt to plainly speak about their faith or their relationship with Jesus, especially when they're put under the pump by superiors. But this is the opportunity that God has given us to speak forth boldly because Jesus is with us, speaking forth his truth. He frees us from the oppression of man 
or trying to find favor through uh, man-pleasing. And he gives us in that very hour words that we can speak, words of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sleep, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Solomon was a man with unparalleled wealth and authority when it comes to what it's like to have money. And the principle of verse 10, it has very wide application um, that the thing you love that's under the sun cannot satisfy you. Full stop. If you love silver, you will not be satisfied with silver. You'll get some silver and go, I want more silver. And if you love abundance and you get abundance, it's not going to satisfy you because there's always more. So the thing you love under the sun, it cannot satisfy you. Yet, what do we do? We look to satisfy ourselves in those things. We think, if I get that thing that I love, that I don't have, then I'll be satisfied. Or if we get the thing, then we say, I need a little bit more time with that thing, or more use of that thing, or more of the same thing. It's some, just chasing satisfaction. Matthew Henry said this, nature is content with little, grace with less, but lust with nothing. Like lust is not satisfied. Our physical hunger, our appetites, insatiable. You can be satisfied from that delicious meal, but in a few hours, guess what? You're like, I could, I could have a little something. I could have some food right now. How about that? What do we out in the fridge? What's in the freezer? Our desires can lead to addictions that leave us less happy and fulfilled than ever. I think about Back in the day when there was a, you know, you had free-to-air television with 20 channels or something, and, and you would, you're, and this was like a step up from how it used to be. The three or four channels where you had the rabbit ears and you're trying to get the reception, or at least that was me in my house. Um, and you're like, 20 channels and there's nothing on. Then it was 80 channels and what, there's nothing interesting. You know, now we have millions of websites and billions of videos, and yet we're bored as ever. We're pumped for a new season of a show, and we're like, ah, it's not what the other one was. It kind of took a step down. I won't bother with next, next season. And, and the news has never been less newsworthy. It, am I the only one that thinks this? Where I'm like, I can scroll through this whole news site, and like maybe 10% are actual stories, but I don't even know if I can trust them. Like I, I, and so... We have to ask ourselves, what are we looking for? Scrolling, 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 scrolling. Have you found it? Have you found the thing you're looking for? You keep looking, you keep looking for it, but have you found it yet? Have you ever said, you read this article and you're like, oh, I finally found it. I don't need to use Google ever again because I found the thing I've been looking for for 10 years, my whole life. And I'll just put the phone away. No need to look up anything ever again. No, that hasn't happened. It may be good for us if it happened. But scrolling, searching, that's not going to satisfy us. Our satisfaction is God who's found us. That's where the satisfaction is. In addition to be no lasting satisfaction with things under the sun, you can acquire more and more, but it may not even benefit you. 
Solomon's looking at it and he's saying, that, you know, and you've experienced this. You get that extra money from overtime and you're like, sweet, this is going to be a fat check or deposit into my account. And, and what? That means I have to pay more tax? Yeah, yeah. You make more money, you pay more tax. Like, oh, hadn't thought about that. Well, why am I working overtime if I can't even get the benefits of it? And then you expand your operation to make some more money, but that in involves investment. You've got to invest in more, more hiring and improving equipment or buying a bigger facility. And, and at the end of the day, you might actually make less of a profit margin than you did before. So there's all this outlay of money for less results. You can have millions more on paper, but have less percentage of profit. And you're like, well, what does it matter? Why am I working so hard for nothing or for less. I think of Solomon. He, he knew what it was to have a big operation. He had um, 30,000 laborers working in shifts in Lebanon. And then he hired 150,000 stone carriers and cutters, as well as 3,300 foremen. Now, that's pretty hefty payroll that he was paying there. And they earned nothing compared to what he earned in taxes but he's like, you know, those guys, they sleep better than me. Those guys, it doesn't matter what they eat. They could eat, you know, pine nuts and lettuce and they're living the life. And some of you are like, sweet, that would be perfect. Pine nuts. Like it, it doesn't matter if they're eating high on the hog or if they're just eating ordinary food that they're foraging for and finding. He's like, they're working hard and they're sleeping well. But Solomon had a lot on his mind. He had about 200,000 employees just in this one job that he was looking after. He's got houses and possessions and animals and enemies and people, disgruntled staff and disgruntled people that he was having to deal with every single day. And it was keeping him up at night. He wasn't sleeping well. It's like the more people, the more assets, the more drama. He had dramas and he's, he may have thought, ah, to be a working man again. But he's like, you know, but as a working man, I would be working to getting exactly what I have right now. Like, what? This is vanity. I'd, I'd have given anything as a working man to have what I have. But now that I have it, I'm like, but I can't even sleep at night. And it left him empty. Verse 13, there's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. So he's musing over the vanity of wealth, and he's saying having money can work to your detriment. So you're not going to be satisfied if money is your aim and you get it. it it's not going to satisfy you. And then when you do get it, it could actually ruin you. The, now you can afford things that will lead you to vices, and, and you can almost afford to, to pursue addictions and lusts that are bad for you, that are harmful. And then there's one who has money, but doesn't actually spend it. It's like they hoard it, um, but they deprive themselves of comforts and necessities. I think of rich Scrooge in one of the movies where he's, he's in his 
huge mansion, one light, little fire, freezing, just huddled with all these blankets around him. And he's, he's drinking some thin broth that he received from charity workers because he doesn't want to spend money on meat. So here's this man who's got his millions. He's got his mansion, but he doesn't want to part with pennies to heat it. And it's like, he's lost everything, but he has it. He said, this is a great vanity. This is a great evil that you have all this, but you're not even able to use it. You're not happy to use it. And so this cycle is perpetuated again and again. A child born into wealth can die in poverty. The one who grows to make a fortune can, can uh, depart the, will depart the world empty. It's like you can hold your treasures in your hands. And when your soul leaves your body, your treasures stay. They don't go with you. So he's like, what's the point of slaving to gain what you can't keep? What does the wealthy have to show for all his toil in the end? And it's a great evil, he said, that you would live in sorrow and sickness and anger. Because having things doesn't take these away from you. It doesn't free you of these burdens. That, and you can't even sleep soundly now that you've obtained wealth. Verse 18, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink, to enjoy all enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it is his heritage as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Joy comes from the Lord. He concludes, it is good to, and it's right to enjoy the food and the drink that God gives you to receive the reward of your labor. This is a gift from God. And every day you have is a gift from God to be able to work, to be able to uh, be employed. That is a gift from God. And rather seeing our abilities or our acquisitions as a just entitlement, like, yeah, I'm getting what I deserve now. Finally, after all this time. No, that's a gift from God. It's by his grace that we have received these things. Even the food you eat, the things you drink, the activities you can do, the, the possessions you have, those are all gifts from God. Twice in this section, Solomon refers to the benefit of our labor as our heritage or our inheritance. This is an inheritance that's a portion to you from God. While I was in college, I spent... Uh, a month and a half in Spain and the family had a dinner tradition that was very foreign to me. When, when I grew up, you would basically just load your plate with everything and you would eat dinner after you prayed. But in this household, all the food was in front of dad. So dad's got this loaf of bread and he's got cheese and he has these little, uh, you know, smoked sausages. And he just like kind of looks over and he's like, Oh, you could use a little bit of this. And he puts it on your plate and I'm like, okay, this is different. And then it would be, you know, here's a piece of bread and give you bread. Oh, it looks like you need some cheese. And so it, dinner took a long time and I didn't have it all in front of me at once, but it's like, I never walked away from the table hungry because the dad knew when you still were like, you know, like, is there more? <laughs> I see all that food in front of you. Do, can I please have some? So I would just sit there and wait and, you know, lo and behold, he would provide it. And so 
It's like that with the Lord, where day by day, moment by moment, he gives us what we need. He's just giving it to us by his grace. And we are satisfied to receive from his hand everything that life, we feel life is throwing at us. God's giving it to you. It's an opportunity to thank him and to glorify him, even when it's hard. Even when it's labor, we can rejoice in that labor because God's given it to us. It's from his hand and it's good. You know, you can't choose your physical likeness, the genetics you inherited from your parents. But by faith in God, knowing he is good, we have satisfaction in him and everything that he's giving us because we're in him. Now, did you know that the righteous those who are born again by faith in Christ and the unrighteous or the wicked, that's our natural state. They have different heritages. And I was looking up some of the scriptures. Uh, we'll just do one on the, those who are in sin or without Christ. Zophar said of those who are not born again in Job 20, 27 through 29 says the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. This is the heritage of the wicked, that everything you have, it will flow away from you, your own life as well. In the day of his wrath, like that is not the inheritance I want. You guys think about an inheritance that you receive from someone. Wrath? No, that's of no benefit to me. That's harmful. That's hurtful. And that's the, the place where the wicked, that's how we are apart from Christ. Condemnation, wrath, and loss for eternity. On the flip side, we have righteousness through faith in Christ. And the, uh, the uh, Isaiah 54, 17, it says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So our inheritance that we can have right now, we, God is not dead and he's, he's alive. He, he gives it to us today. This inheritance of righteousness and protection and security and lack of condemnation to those who are in Christ. We also see that God's word is our heritage in Psalm 119, 111. It says, your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. This is your inheritance. Christ, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, he is our inheritance. We read that children are an inheritance from the Lord, the heritage of the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Lamentations 3, starting in verse 22. Now, this was written in a season of intense suffering. When Israel was being battered and destroyed at the hands of their enemies. And in the midst of these lamentations of Jeremiah, this is what he concludes. In Lamentations 3 verse 22, it says, Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
the Lord, our inheritance. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's faithful. Every day we forget. We forget to keep our word. God does not forget us, nor does he neglect to do what he has said. It's good for those to wait on him. So he is our heritage. He is our portion. And we have this unfailing expectation of good presently and forever because God is faithful. When we think of an inheritance, we think of something that we're going to receive that's beneficial, something that we actually want, uh, something of sentimental value. Solomon, at one stage, he gave King, Cyre, King Tyre, uh, sorry, Hiram, King of Tyre, he gave him a gift of 20 cities in Galilee. Now, if you receive 20 cities, that sounds pretty cool. Oh, yeah, cool. 20 cities. What would you do with that land? But he said that Hiram was displeased with these cities and called them Kabul, which means worthless. <laughs> so he gets these 20 cities. He's like, what have you given me, brother? These things, they're worthless. I can't use these. Kabul. You know, all that's under the sun is Kabul compared to Christ, who is our portion and our inheritance. He is, he is everything. He is our life. And being in Christ provides contentment in the life he's given us under the sun, whether it's a short life or a long life. And as a result of Christ's labor, so it's not our labor to earn his favor, but because Christ has labored for us to redeem and forgive and to save us, we can say this with David in Psalm 16, five and six. Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. It's not, I will have a good inheritance. I have a good inheritance. That God, he gave his people land with boundaries. He gave them land by lot. He gave them exactly what they needed, where they could dwell in the land and be fruitful and prosper. And David's like, you know, God's property lines, God's boundaries on my days are perfect. He maintains my lot. He's given it to me. It's good. And it's fallen in pleasant places. I have no complaints. I have no criticisms. God's the one that I'm going to seek and listen to. And we who have Christ as our portion, we have a bright future that outshines the sun because Jesus is the portion of our inheritance that falls to us right now. You know, the prodigal, he's like, give me my inheritance now. Well, God has given you your inheritance now. He's given you himself and let's rejoice in him and everything he gives us by his grace. We can enjoy life in full under the sun because of Christ who is our portion. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us Christ, for giving us hope and eternal life and just for doing for ourselves what we could never do. We could never dream of, of righteousness and perfect standing before God and thank you that you have given us this through Christ, our Savior, our inheritance, and our portion. Christ, who is wisdom for us. Christ, who is life for us. And I pray, Lord, that when we look at the life that you've given us and we see it as Kabul, we see it as worthless, Lord, that you would correct us. You would show us uh, how good you are to give us such things. And that you have plans and purposes, even in the trials that we face, to refine us and to draw us close to you. And we thank you, God, that you are faithful, that you will keep your word. And I pray, Lord, we, may we be quick to listen 
slow to speak, to think carefully before we utter words before you, because you are the almighty God who hears and knows all things, the Lord of all whom we worship and bow down before. You are God. We love you and we thank you for giving us your son, for giving us a hope of eternity and for blessing our lives here under the sun. And we thank you that uh, we just have an unfailing hope in Christ who is our life. Lord, we ask that you would just uh, go before us. You would lead us in this life, how to please you, how to speak words boldly and courageously to glorify you and how to, to love others as you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.